This may come as no surprise to you, my beautiful listeners, but I am a woman filled with an unending carousel of questions on a practically constant basis. Like a toddler that just won't quit, the whys, hows, what ifs, and what abouts flow like a torrent from my curious brain, and in no small part, that's how this podcast came to be. After all, most of my questions trend toward the more peculiar than mundane. However, this week, I decided to open the grab bag of my mind and pull out a few questions that have really just been lingering in there. As always, my loves, I'm Rocket Fox. Join me this week as we put a because to the why. The first why I have for you this week is really what brought this topic to the forefront for me and cemented why I should do an episode on answering the various questions that have plagued me, as I'm sure they have you. While it's one that I perhaps might have wondered about in my youth, it's a question that hit me like a sack of gold coins while I was watching my standard, non-ad-free, streaming service cartoons while eating a quick dinner. The ads come into play, you see, because a particular one cropped up that featured an array of different colored and patterned piggy banks being smashed open by increasingly aggressive hammers to an orchestral backing. Despite my myriad of questions, the biggest one to surface for me was, why piggy banks. Sure, in these modern times, we are spoiled for choice with banks that range from Transformers to Pikachu to Baphomet. True story, I've found it via the magic of the internet. However, when one thinks of a childhood vehicle for saving that allowance and spare change, a plastic or ceramic piggy is almost synonymous with the very idea. It turns out, the origin of this cute piece of purposeful pottery is actually a bit of a pun as well. Way back when, say around 600 years or so, financial institutions hadn't been established yet, much less their cartoon-interrupting banking ads. In those days, people would keep their earnings and savings in clay pots or jars. Clay, you see, was what household wares were made of, because metal was simply too expensive to be used indoors for things like that. The clay used for pots, jars, dishes, and so forth was an orangish variety called pug, but spelled P-Y-G-G. Thusly, the extra coin or two that could stand to be saved would get dropped into the pug pot. It was during these days of the Saxon era when the pronunciation of the pot resembled the modern smushy-faced dog, in time, however, that pronunciation shifted to pig. During the same initial Saxon era, the oinky animal that will come into play was called a pika, 
spelled P-I-C-G-A. However, during the two to three hundred years that the pug pot became a pig one, so thus did the pigga become a pig, spelled P-I-G-G-E. And interestingly enough, it is a pronunciation change perhaps thought to have transpired because pigs were known to roll in that very same orange-hued mud and dirt that the pig pots were made of. In the 19th century, enough time had passed that the pig pots' humble word origin had been forgotten, so that when potters would receive a request for a pig bank, they began to craft pottery shaped like, well, pigs. The customers didn't complain, however, as they and their children loved it. The rest is piggy history. Well, all except for one other little thing. In the article I pulled my research from, they also went into the origins of the word bank, which obviously I want to know, I just hadn't realized it yet. This is actually a fairly simple explanation, but one that I found interesting, so I hope you do too. When money first began to be changed and lended in a way that would lead to a future of banking industry, it was in northern Italy, where the lenders would sit at tables in open marketplaces and main squares, and do their business. Across the table would be neat stacks of money from different trading countries, while the lender himself would sit upon a bench, or banco. And it's actually this word for bench from which the grander and more overarching word bank would derive. The money on my mind, a great deal of it will fix me all I've ever desired. The money on my mind, I count it every time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and I count it. Ooh, one, two, three, four, twenty-four, seven, and I stack it. The next why I wanted to take a look at this week is one that I've found incredibly intriguing, and despite the fact that I feel like I could wager a decent guess on why this phenomenon occurs, it seems that there is actually science to give more of a groundwork to the brain workings. And this, my loves, is the worst valley of them all, the uncanny valley. For anyone who may be unfamiliar with the term, Uncanny Valley refers to, and I'm pulling this definition from our friend Wikipedia, the relationship between the object's resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to the object. The idea being that something too closely resembling a person, but not quite being a person, causes a really bad emotional response from the viewer. You can find instances of this in robotics, art, video games, dolls, and so forth. The phenomenon itself was first described and the term coined in 1978 by Masahiro Mori, a robotics professor who used the expression in Japanese, which translated to English as uncanny valley. The theory was that as robots become more human-like, people would like them better. And this was true. Until it wasn't. Once they got too human-like, i.e. incredibly close but obviously not human, 
people became uncomfortable and uneasy. Humans, on the whole, have an incredibly strong sensitivity, nay, desire to see themselves in the world around them. People project faces on cars, trees, even toast. Pareidolia, anyone? Although interestingly, a study that was done by Thalia Wheatley, a psychologist at Dartmouth College, found that when it comes to something actually appearing human, people are just as ready to believe. That is, if the face or suggestion of a face is familiar to the ethnic group being tested. Of course, the suggestion of a face, something resembling a human, that's all fine and well. However, I say Sagan, a cognitive scientist at the University of California, San Diego, says that we fall into the uncanny valley when the subject in question quote looks or behaves real enough to trigger a mental switchover. The viewer's brain suddenly begins to consider the figure as a possible human. End quote. And if the image, character, robot, whatever it might be, were able to pass muster, the valley would be skipped, presumably. However, as Sagan says, another quote: "When you make appearances human-like, you raise expectations for the brain. When those expectations are not met, then you have a problem in the brain." Now, the difficulty in defining how and when said valley transpires is that it's fairly subjective. Where the uncanny line lies for some isn't the same for others. The thing the event holds in common, however, is a line between human and non-human, and this is where this next research took place. Dr. Fabian Gravenhorst, a Sir Henry Dale Fellow and lecturer in the Department of Physiology, Development, and Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge, said that the existence of the uncanny valley as a phenomenon implies, quote. A neural mechanism that first judges how close a given sensor input, such as the image of a robot, lies to the boundary of what we perceive as a human or non-human agent. This information would then be used by a separate valuation system to determine the agent's likability. To research this, 21 participants took part in two tests while an MRI charted their brains' blood flows. Showing the changes in activity to various regions, in the first test, the individuals were shown a set of images, including humans, artificial humans, android robots, humanoid robots, and mechanoid robots. Then each was asked to rate on a scale of likableness and human likeness. In the second test, each person was asked to decide which from each image they would trust to select a personal gift for them. The caveat being, it had to be a gift that a human would like. So no points for it being the thought that counts. Measuring the brain activity during these two tests, the researchers found that the more human-like the image was, the brain activity changed near the visual cortex, which deciphers visual images, as I'm sure you already know. In a sense. It was creating a sort of, as the article put it, spectrum of human likeness via the activity change for each photo. Now, along the midline of the frontal lobe, where the left and right hemispheres come together, 
That is called the medial prefrontal cortex. It's been found in the past that this is the area that is able to value all sorts of input, such as shooting out reward signals for both a tasty slice of cheesecake as well as a nice long hug. During this study, one part of the prefrontal cortex sent out a sort of human detection signal with activity that went way up when in the presence of human beings. The second part, which is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, or VMPFC, which I will never say again in this episode, produced a likability activity pattern that mirrored what scientists expected to see given the uncanny valley response. During the second test, the gift-giving portion of the non-human program, the participants' brains showed the same activity responses, showing that the uncanny valley response played a role in how they made choices regarding their robot overlords. The researchers additionally found that the amygdala, an area of the brain responsible for emotional responses, also became highly active when rejecting gifts from the human-like, but not human, gift givers. This area lit up the most in the participants who were most likely to refuse gifts from these artificial agents. It's an area of research that has been explored since the invention of the name, and it makes sense. As we move forward technologically, Artificial intelligence and robotics continues to make huge strides, and researchers and developers continue to seek to identify what will be the most appealing, or at least, uh, least offensive, to those that will have to use and interact with the bots of the future. That said, this particular study I found on the neuroscience side of things, whose article was published in July of 2019, was the very first to study the differences between individuals by charting the brain activity and showing that there is no one solution to the Uncanny Valley puzzle. However, it could also start to uncover more of the neuro ins and outs of why we feel the way we do about things that are very like us, but just not quite enough. my loves. In honor of upcoming Valentine's Day at the end of the week, the last why I have for you has to do with that widely known symbol of affection and romance that in no way resembles its biological counterpart. <laughs> and that would be the drawn heart symbol. Why does it look like that? I'd always heard in passing that perhaps it was originally because it resembled various elements of feminine anatomy. Uh, however, according to an article I found on History.com, it seems there's another theory that relates to sylphium, which was a particular type of giant fennel that evidently once grew on the North African coastline near Cyrene, a Greek colony in which the Greeks and later Romans would use it for flavoring, medicine, 
and also an early form of birth control. The plant itself became so known for its powers in the contraceptive department that Cyrene boomed, becoming wealthy from the trade of the plant, even putting the distinctive shape of its seed pod on their currency. So sought after was the silphium that it ended up being cultivated into extinction, with legend having it that Emperor Nero was presented with the last surviving stalk. The before-mentioned seed pod shape, the one that found its way onto the Cyrenian currency, of course, that was the shape of a heart. In fact, there is an image of the pod stamped onto a coin from Cyrene from 510 to 490 BC, which is the oldest known image of a, quote, heart, even though technically it's a seed pod. Now, there are other and more anatomical theories as well. It's been argued that the true roots of the shape could hail back to early Galen and Aristotle, who had described the heart as having three chambers with a small dent in the middle. By this theory, the shape may have come to pass when ancient medical texts were put to illustration in the Middle Ages by scholars, artists, and scientists. There is an example of an Italian physicist, Guido da Vigavano, who evidently made a series of drawings that feature a heart resembling what was described. And, in fact, what I said earlier about the heart shape having no resemblance to an actual human heart may not be completely true. According to Carlos Machado, a cardiologist and medical illustrator, the shape itself does actually somewhat resemble the shape of a biological heart, if cut open. Ah, the true meaning of Valentine's. Of course, the shape itself does actually have a stronger resemblance when compared to bird and reptile hearts, which could actually make a great deal of sense, given that during the early days of dissection, the Catholic Church for some reason frowned upon using humans, so scholars and scientists would use the next best thing, studying animals instead. Body snatching would come later. While for many years, the heart had been linked to housing powerful emotions, some of the earliest known examples of the heart being linked to love would be during the 7th century BC, in which the poet Sappho wrote of her, quote, mad heart quaking with love, and lines such as, quote, Love shook my heart, like the wind on the mountain troubling the oak trees. It was in the 13th and 14th centuries, the stylized shape and meaning of love really started to come together. Though now we might not recognize it quite so easily, since in those days, these heart representations were how we would view them today as being upside down with the pointy part on top. Of course, in those days, instead of a point, it was a rounded base. The first time we can spot the image of a heart used in a touchy-feely, non-medically sort of way is on an illustration that accompanies medieval French piece Le Roman de la Poire by Thibault, written around 1255, in which it's thought that this is the first time the idea is thrown out that one can, quote, give 
their heart away to a potential lover. In the early 14th century, the shape of the heart that we recognize today began to really manifest, away from the rounded base to the pointy one, and by Francesco Barberino's Italian piece Documenti di Amore, a piece that went wildly popular in the same century, the top of the heart that features the two scalloped rounds along with that pointy base really took off, and that shape was repeated everywhere. Which, at the end of the day, having a symbol go viral that means love and affection, and having that symbol turn up everywhere? Well, I think that sounds just lovely. much for joining me for a grab bag of whys. This week's bonus tale on the Patreon veers a little away from why and into a what. But in keeping up with the holiday, you know, the one filled with love, romance, flowers, chocolate, cards, I decided to roll with it. So hop on over to patreon.com slash rocketfox if you've ever been curious about what happens when an astronaut farts in space. <laughs> Additionally, if you want to see an image of the coin from Cyrene featuring the Silphium seed pod, I will have that up on the Facebook and Instagram page. And I even finally got a hold of a social media scheduler, so it'll be up by the time you're hearing this. I'm getting to be so on top of things. <laughs> Otherwise, come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantasticallystrange and Twitter at fantasticoddpod. As always, thank you so, so much for your support. If you are enjoying the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, and do all the things myself and am so honored to be able to bring you stories about topics I'm passionate about, and your ear means the world to me. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so much again, and I can't wait to see you next time. <laughs>